I know that from the title of my sermon, some of you might think that this is going to be about blue oyster cult or the need for more cowbell. But it is about a reaper. 24 years ago, in 1998, Octavia Butler published the book Parable of the Talents, which won a Nebula Award for Best Novel. The story is set in a dystopian America that descended into chaos after a 15-year period of upheaval known as the Apocalypse, bitterly nicknamed the Pox. The Pox was not a disease like COVID, though, but a a crisis caused by society's refusal to deal with coinciding economic, social, and environmental crises. One character in the novel states, we caused the problems, then we sat and we watched as they grew into crises. We watched education become more a privilege of the rich than a basic necessity that it must be if a civilized society is to survive. We watched as convenience and profit and inertia excused greater and more dangerous environmental degradation. We watched poverty and hunger and disease become inevitable for more and more people. Somehow, America suffered a major non-military defeat. It lost no important war, yet it did not survive the pox. Perhaps, this writer says, simply it lost sight of what it once intended to be, then blundered aimlessly until it exhausted itself. What is left now, what it has become, I do not know. In the wake of the pox, Butler's dystopian America comes under the grip of a Christian fundamentalist denomination called Christian America, led by a Texas senator and religious zealot who is seeking to restore American power and prestige, and he runs for president with the slogan, Make America Great Again. I kid you not. This was written in 1998. And once elected president, he embarks on a crusade to cleanse America of non-Christian faiths. The oppression of women becomes commonplace. Slavery resurfaces with shock collars to control people. Extremist groups roam around and invade neighborhoods and establish concentration camps, while the rest of the population uses virtual reality headsets known as dream masks to escape the harsh reality of life. Over the course of her career, Butler insisted that this book was not a prediction of the future. In remarks she delivered at MIT, Butler said, Parable of the Talents was not a book about prophecy. It was delivered as a cautionary tale. Although, she says, people have tried to tell me that it was a prophecy, all I have to say is, I certainly hope not. Unfortunately, I fear we are now living inside an eerie version of the nightmare Butler wrote about a quarter of a century ago. We're struggling in the wake of our own apocalypse, our own pox. And like the people in Butler's novel, we want to put on dream masks to shut out all the chaos and calamity so we don't have to think about all the things the rise of a new COVID variant, attacks on reproductive health, mass shootings, white Christian nationalism, anti-trans legislation, the housing crisis, inflation, environmental devastation, political polarization, racial injustice, and on and on, so many more. We want to escape, even just for a moment, the harsh reality of life, to find some respite from the never-ending onslaught of disappointment and tragedy and grief. Our brains can only take so much. Our hearts can only take so much. We need a break. So we turn on the television. 
or social media, stare blankly into our phones. What are we looking for in there? Do we just need a distraction? Or are we looking for something more? Some meaning or purpose? Some form of hope? Or maybe, maybe we're just trying to find another story, a better story. Fred Craddock once said, when your child wants to hear a bedtime story, you can't respond to them by saying, I'm sorry, love, but daddy is too busy to tell you the story of Little Red Riding Hood tonight, so let me just tell you the point of the story instead. Why is that insufficient? Why is that dissatisfying? Because a good story cannot be boiled down to a point. We need stories for story's sake. Because human beings are storytelling animals. Our brains are hardwired for stories. It's the way we learn and process information. Jonathan Gottschild writes, stories are perhaps the main cohering force in human life. A society is composed of fractitious people with different personalities, goals, and agendas. What connects us beyond our kinship ties is a story. It's the counterforce to social disorder. The center cannot hold without a story. Or a scholar, Harvey Cox, once said, all human beings have that innate need to hear and tell stories and to have a story to live by. And religion provides one of the main ways for people to meet this abiding human need. And maybe that's why 35% of everything Jesus said was a story. Or why the Gospel of Mark tells us that when it came to the crowds, Jesus did not say anything to them without using a parable. Parables, however, are not standard or straightforward stories. They're a particular kind of storytelling. Parables do not have one truth, one big idea, a singular point, a solo takeaway, a solitary meaning, or a lone interpretation. They contain multitudes. One of the clearest definitions comes from scholar C.H. Dodd who said, a parable is a metaphor drawn from nature or common life that arrests the hearer by its vividness or strangeness leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I love that definition. But an even more provocative image comes to us from Kenneth Bailey, who describes a parable as a house in which the listener is invited to take up residence. And then once inside, they are urged to look out through the windows of that residence onto the world. For instance, the protagonist of Butler's Parable of the Talents, Lauren Olamina, is the founder of a spiritual community called Acorn, centered around the belief that their destiny is to travel beyond the earth and live on other planets. Her father, though, was a pastor, and Lauren remembers listening to her father quoting Jesus' Parable of the Talents from Matthew 25. And Lauren, from her father, learned this importance of telling stories. But she was deeply dissatisfied with his interpretation of the parable. She says, my father was a great believer in education and hard work and personal responsibility. Those are our talents, he would say, as my brother's eyes glazed over and I tried not to sigh. God has given them to us and he'll judge us according to how we use them. This seems well and good, but then Lauren confesses that the way her father read the parable was completely inadequate for the harsh and unforgiving world that they were facing. 
like the parable of the talents. The parable of the minas or pounds, Luke's version that we read today, has been commonly understood as a morality tale about the importance of stewardship. If you've been in church for a day, you've heard that telling of this story, where God or Jesus is the king who entrusts his servants with talents of money and gifts and skills and time and ability and power or whatever. And when he returns, there's a reckoning and accounting. The first two servants multiplied what they were giving through business and are praised by the king. But the third servant buried the money in the ground, or in Luke's version, wrapped it in a handkerchief out of fear. So God, or Jesus in this story, declares the third servant wicked and punishes him severely. And then with this, we are invited to answer the question always in the same way, what will you do with the gifts of time and talent and treasure that God has entrusted to you? Then, of course, all are invited to sing, take my life and let it be. As the offering plates are passed two times, not once. Once for the stewardship campaign and then the second time for good measure. And then we can all go home and feel good about ourselves. This, the traditional stewardship reading of this parable. Now, I must admit to you, in the kind of year that we're having, it was extremely tempting for me to lean into that familiar interpretation of the parable. I really wrestled with whether or not I should just go in that direction this week. But as many of you know, I am nothing if not a victim of my own convictions and my own desire for truth. And over the last few years, I've become very suspicious of that familiar reading as I've watched countless pastors and scholars and politicians use this scripture, cite this scripture to justify our current economic system and to claim it is verifiable proof that Jesus was a capitalist or less anachronistically that this parable is the conclusive evidence that Jesus believed in the value of doing business, hard work, engaging in speculation, investing what we have, being rewarded for our acquisitiveness and taking risks to multiply our employer's holdings. This makes me very suspicious because, as Amy Jill Levine has said, a parable should disturb us. If we hear it, she says, and are not disturbed, there is seriously something amiss with our moral compass. Once when a Catholic priest told this parable to a group of peasant farmers in Nicaragua, the first words out of the mouths of those poor campesinos was, that's a lousy parable, priest. Imagine being dirt poor and hearing Jesus say, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. What? What? That doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. That doesn't sound like the Jesus who said, blessed are the poor. Or what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and forfeit their souls? Or who told the parable of the rich fool and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Or who said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Or who just had dinner with Zachari Zacchaeus like few verses before and proclaimed that his whole household was saved because he agreed to give half of his possessions to the poor and pay fourfold reparations to anyone whom he had defrauded? How could Jesus tell this parable that seems to praise economic exploitation after lauding Zacchaeus for paying reparations? What in the world is going on here with this parable? Well, you may not have noticed, but Jesus didn't actually say that phrase, to all who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, 
what they have will be taken away. Yes, sure, he was telling the story. But those words come from the mouth of the king. They're not Jesus' interpretation of the parable. And unlike other parables, this one does not begin with the kingdom of God is like, which is a tip. It may be about something else. It may be about the world instead. And I don't know about you, but if God or Jesus is the king in this story, I need to find another religion. I don't like the picture of God I see here as a grim reaper who reaps what he did not sow, engages in violent retribution, and angrily slaughters his enemies. Not to mention, there are historical examples of real kings who left to claim a crown and returned to kill their enemies. Herod, for one, who made a trip to Rome in 40 BC, seeking an appointment as the king of Israel, and his son, Archelaus, who made a similar journey in 4 BC. Both returned as king to slaughter everyone who opposed them. Is that who we should be comparing God and Jesus to? Or what about the fact that lending money at interest, or what was called usury, was expressly condemned in the Bible over and over again in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in Ezekiel, in Nehemiah, in the Psalms, forbidden also by Jewish law and by the Romans in the first century? It's no coincidence to me that we see a massive shift in the interpretation of this parable in the 19th century at the advent of the Industrial Revolution, when the last few laws against lending money at interest were abolished. As scholar Richard Rohrbaugh puts it, commentators from the 19th and 20th century genuinely reveled in the parable seeming exhortation to venturous investment and diligent labor. They turned to castigate the third slave, whose cautious and unproductive behavior represented an object lesson of entrepreneurial failure. But if the profiteering portrayed in the parable would have been understood by the original poor peasant audience as exploitation that contradicted the teachings of Jesus, is it not possible that we've turned this story backwards for centuries to confirm our financial desires? Is it not possible that the king and the first two servants in this story, in this parable, are the foil, and that the third servant is in fact the hero? Like the parable of the Good Samaritan, could it be that it's not the first or the second who appear, but the third who comes to save the day? No matter how conservative or liberal we are, as Christians, we are notorious for making the Bible what we want it to be, what we want it to say, what we want it to hear. We are masters at self-deception. We are experts at reading the parables of Jesus in ways that affirm the status quo, comfort our lives, support the way the world is. We take these brilliant riddles and metaphorical fables that were intended to shock our consciences and change our lives, and we turn them into nothing more than nursery rhymes, bedtime stories, cute motivational speeches, or Hallmark cards. What would it take for us to let the Bible challenge us in our lives and our world again? Here's a radical idea. If God or Jesus are in this story anywhere, and I'm not sure they are, maybe they're the third servant in the parable. The one who interrupted the accumulation of wealth and refused to participate in the greedy, acquisitive exploitation of the poor. It is quite telling to me that this parable appears at the end of the Gospels. And the narrator here, Luke, frames the story by saying, Jesus told them this parable because he was getting close to Jerusalem. Remember what happened in Jerusalem? Unlike Herod and Archelaus, Jesus did not go to Jerusalem to become 
king to be crowned and then kill his enemies, did he? He was going with a carefully planned protest to enter the temple, interrupt business, turn over the tables of the money changers, stop all trading and usury, drive out the people who were selling and speculating, while quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers and thieves. And just like the third servant, Jesus would be killed for interrupting their economic system, for not playing by their rules. If God or Jesus are in this parable, maybe they're the third servant, the one who refused to take advantage of the poor, who stood against those who reap what they did not sow, who turned the tables on a system where those who are given more are, are given, those who have are given more and those who have nothing have even what they have taken away. This one who rejected the idea that the rich should get richer and the poor should just get poorer. Jesus is the one, remember, who took all the temptations of the devil that were offered to him in the desert, power, prestige, possessions, and handed them back to him, saying, no thank you. I don't want to rule over ten cities, or five cities, or even one city. I did not come to dominate or rule over people, but to serve them, to love them, to heal them, to liberate them. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul, he said. And if we are unable to see Jesus and God in the third servant in this parable, it may be that our spiritual and biblical imaginations have been severely diminished by the fatalistic ideologies of our day. And that we may need to cultivate a more expansive and hopeful vision of what is possible with God. Survival is insufficient. We are called to thrive, to flourish, to love, to liberate, to live life fully and abundantly, and to imagine new worlds and new ways of being that work for everyone, especially the poor and the widows and the orphans. To create a world, and to create this world, we need not only new stories, we need to train ourselves to read our old stories in new ways. At the end of Butler's novel, the character, Lauren Olamina, says, we keep falling into the same ditches. We learn more about the physical universe, more about our own bodies, more about technology, but somehow, down through history, we go on building empires of one kind or another and then destroying them in one way or another. We have, go on having these stupid wars that we justify and get passionate about. But in the end, all they do is kill huge numbers of people, maim others, impoverish still more, spread disease and hunger, and set the stage for the next war. And when we look at all of that in history, we just shrug our shoulders and we say, well, that's the way things are. That's the way things have always been. But we have a choice. That's what it means to be human. What it means to be a storytelling animal we choose our leaders, we choose our lives, we choose our path, we choose our economic system, we choose our own destiny. So Lauren says, we can go on building and destroying until we either destroy ourselves or destroy the ability of our world to sustain us. Or we can make something more of ourselves. We can grow up, leave the nest, we can fulfill our destiny, make homes for ourselves among the stars and become a combination of what we want to be and whatever our new environments challenge us to become. Our new world, she says, will remake us as we remake them. And some of the new people who emerge from this will develop new ways to cope. They'll have to. 
And that will break the old cycle, even if it's only the beginning of a new one, a different one. Consider that we are born, she says, not with purpose, but with potential. I don't want to bore you by telling you the point of this parable. It's not about the point anyway. So instead, I'd like to invite you to come inside the house of this story and take up residence. Look through its windows outside on the world. There once was a servant who was offered all the riches of the earth, wealth, fame, power, power over all the kingdoms, the opportunity to win in every way that it seemed to matter, but he turned it down. Instead, he dedicated himself to a life of love and service, healing and embracing all people, teaching and telling stories about liberation. He went to a big city and interrupted business there, stopping commerce, overturning the banks that were exploiting the poor and driving out all the profiteers. So the political and religious leaders cooked up a plot to kill him. They convinced one of his own to betray him, captured him in the middle of the night. They scattered his followers. They tried him before a kangaroo court and executed him in the most humiliating way. But he didn't stay dead for very long. He got up, he started walking again, and a new community of love and equality formed around him. A new economy of sharing became their way of life. And to anyone who would listen, he said, the world doesn't have to be this way. We can make a new one together if we want to. We can start a new way of life. All we have to do is turn around and come follow me. Amen.